Father, we just come to your word today, and we're so grateful for every word of this Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. It is God-breathed, Lord. We know that, and we're so blessed to have that. Lord, teach us today from this story in Genesis about the manna that came down from heaven, which the Israelites uh, ate of. Lord, teach us how that manna represents you and what you are to us and how we partake of that manna, Lord, through the Lord's Supper and, and through our Bible study and just how important that is. Lord, we just ask that you're present in our study today, Lord, that you bless our study by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we glean what you would have us to glean from this great lesson. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. About a month ago, somebody came up to me uh, not long after we'd gone in the book of Exodus, and they said, well, I'm really enjoying the study in the Old Testament, but I can't wait till we get to the New Testament. And uh, I hear comments like that sometimes, and, and I understand that, because there's a lot of people that think, have this idea that somehow the, the really good stuff is in the New Testament. I mean, you got to wade through the Old Testament so you can get to the really good stuff in the New Testament. And there's a lot of people that feel that way. There's a Southern Baptist pastor. I won't name his name. He's one of the most prominent pastors in the United States of America. In fact, his dad is maybe the most prominent pastor in the United States of America. But I recently heard him say, and I'm quoting now, let me read this. He says, it's time we unhitch the Old Testament from the Christian faith. He went on to say that though the Old Testament is divinely inspired, it should never be the go-to source regarding any behavior in the church. He said the church leaders unhitched the church, the, the New Testament church leaders, unhitched the church altogether from the worldview value system and regulations of Jewish scripture. He goes on to say, he says, Peter, John, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and we must do that as well. Then he got to the heart of the matter, the way he saw, sees things. He says, we must not make it difficult for these Gentiles who might be turning to God by teaching them the Old Testament. In other words, in his mind, there are certain passages in the Old Testament that might be offensive to non-Christians, might be offensive to Christians. I mean, there are some passages in the Old Testament that might offend you. Uh, I, I know exactly what he's talking about here. He's talking about things like a seven-day creation. I mean, how silly is that? It's silly to the world, but it's not silly to God. Because that's how God created the world. Uh, the idea that, that man didn't evolve from an ape, that man was created from the dust of the ground by the Lord himself, and he blew the breath of life into his nostrils. I mean, that is foolishness to the, to the Gentile world. The idea that the Lord in the flood would wipe out billions of people in just one day, that seems terrible to the world. The idea that he would kill the firstborn of Egypt during those plagues. The idea that he would tell uh, Saul to kill all the Amalekites, every man, woman, and child. That just doesn't seem right to the world. Uh, the, some of the precepts that are given to us in the Old Testament, like a man shall not lie with a man. It is an abomination to the Lord. That seems in our modern culture to be, be, be outdated. Uh, the idea that if you have a rebellious son, you're to stone that son. That seems outdated, and, and really, that, and don't do that. I'm not telling you to do that if you have a rebellious son. But, but that definitely seems outdated to this world. It doesn't have, seem to have a place in the world. So all of these passages like this are really frightening to the world. And so we, what this pastor was saying, we really need to leave those passages alone because we don't want to frighten people. Let me tell you what, they're in there to frighten people. That's what the, a lot of the Old Testament is about. The law is given to us to scare us, to let us know that the wages of sin is death. 
I mean, the, the, uh, the Old Testament Lord, Jehovah, is the same as the New Testament Jesus, uh, Jehovah's salvation. Uh, and Jesus is love and God is love. But because he's love, he is a just God. And since he is a just God, he punishes sin. And sin produces death. I mean, sin wreaks havoc on the world. And God, because it wreaks havoc on the world, God has to totally eradicate sin to make this world right. And that's what the Old Testament is about. This process of eradicating sin from the world so that we can live in the kind of environment that God intended us for us to live. And, and, and I got to, you know, I, I read something like this and, and, and I got to say, how can anyone say that the, I mean, reading the, if you didn't read anything but the New Testament, how can anyone say that the apostles unhitched the Old, the Old Testament from the rest of the Bible or from, from the Christian faith? There's, there's no way they did that. I mean, read the book of Romans. There's a whole chapter there on, on the faith of Abraham. Uh, you read Galatians, there's a whole chapter there on the allegory of, of, of uh, Hagar and Sarah and how they represent the difference between grace and law. I mean, the, the Old Testament, we see it throughout the Bible. You look at the book of Hebrews and, and, and it's made up of quotations from the law, uh, quotations from Leviticus, quotations from the Psalms, quotations from all over the Old Testament. You look at Revelation, in the book of Revelation, there, they, there's at least 400 quotations or paraphrases, they're, they're not quotations, that John uses in the book of Revelation. Jesus himself in just four Gospels where, where he spoke about 30% of the, the content of those Gospels, in those four Gospels, he goes to the Old Testament 78 times. So it is a, a bunch of baloney to say that we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the Christian faith. Look, the apostles only had one Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't unhitch the Bible from scriptures. The only Bible they had was the Old Testament. And so, so, so that's foolish now, foolishness. Now, I understand where some of these pastors are coming from that say, hey, we need to get away from the Old Testament. We need to get into the New Testament. I remember, remember, remember my mother when I first got saved telling me that, hey, you stay, don't read the Old Testament, read the New Testament. Read the New Testament over and over and over again. Read those letters of Paul and, and get those letters down. And I understand where she was coming from because, because there is another extreme out there that teach that we are still under law that somehow that we maintain our salvation by keeping the Ten Commandments, that somehow we're sanctified by keeping the Ten Commandments. No, you're saved by grace and grace only, and you're sanctified by grace and grace only. But that grace that we have in Christ can only be understood through a study of the Old Testament. I mean, you have to understand something about the creation something about the fall, something about the faith of Abraham, something about the exodus and what the exodus means, something about the law and the sacrificial system, because all of these things are shadows of the real thing. They're shadows of the gospel itself. And then you have the whole history of Israel. And what was that history? Israel had been given the law, and, and how did they do with that? Remember when they first given when they were first given the law, we're going to see that in a few weeks. You remember what they said? Moses brought the law down and said, this is what the Lord wants you to do. And they said, all these things we will do. Well, how did that work out for them? For 2,000 years, they never did the law. They couldn't do the law. And God gave them a chance to live by law, but they couldn't do it. They failed over and over again to the point where God says at some point, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not one in Israel, not one anywhere in the world. And that's what the law shows you, that you can't live by law. Does that mean the law's not good? No, the law is good, but, but, but we can't keep the law. Now, Jesus and the apostles sought to unhitch us from something. They sought to unhitch us from salvation uh, uh, by keeping the law. From that part of the Bible, they did, they did seek to do that. Their goal was to get us, to hitch us to Jesus Christ so that we could be saved by faith. 
Paul tells us over in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. That's one of my favorite verses. Now, he says he's the end of the law for righteousness. He doesn't say that Christ is the end of the law. Jesus said it like this, not one yod, not one little yod, not one little tittle will, will pass from the law or from this book or from, from this world until the end of the age, until the end of time. And so the law is still there. But the purpose of the law is not to save you. The purpose of the law is that it is a tutor to bring you to Jesus Christ. And, and one of the re reasons we have so many what I consider false conversions uh, today is that people are taught a New Testament gospel, which is good. That's a good thing, but you can't understand the gospel if you don't under the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. That that New Testament will make no give be of no value to you unless you have some understanding of the law. And so people are taught, hey, God is love, God loves you. Uh, step forward or say a sinner's prayer and uh, you're saved and, and you've got your ticket to heaven and that's, that's what it's all about. Uh, but, but it doesn't work like that. Before you can go to heaven, you have to be made holy. You've got to know what holiness is. Where do we find holiness? We find what holiness is in the law. In the Old Testament, we're, we're, that's where we see the very character of God, how he deals with man, what pleases God, what doesn't please God. And, and if you just ignore that and say, I'm going to be saved by grace and I'm just, you know, God's going to accept me as I am, you don't understand the gospel at all. He's not going to accept anybody the way they are. There is none righteous, no, not one. In God's eyes, we are all wretched and we have to be made holy to keep sin from entering into the kingdom of God. And so, uh, and, and so God gave them the sacrificial system because he gave them the law and showed them that they were sinners. Then he gave them the sacrificial system. But there wasn't enough blood of bull and goats to take away the sins of one person, less alone the sins of the whole world. What, what was required? What was required was the sacrifice of God himself on a cross, and that's the only way we can be saved. And that's why the Old Testament is so important. It brings us to an understanding of what God has done for us on the cross. I, we'll never fully understand that. But it's through a study of the Old Testament that you see the impossibility uh, of saving yourself. You see that you can only be saved by grace. And and it's through a study of the Old Testament. And that's why I love the Old Testament so much, as much as I love the New Testament. Because when I study the Old Testament, it makes me appreciate what God has done for me through Jesus Christ on that cross because of his broken body and his shed blood. Now, I went through all of those gyrations, not only to... to uh, debate this idea that somehow the Old Testament isn't as important as the New Testament, but also because the passage that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to be looking at this manna from heaven. And there's no way you can unhitch this passage from the New Testament. And there's no way you can unhitch the New Testament passage, one of the most important passages in the Bible, John chapter 6. You can unhitch that from the Old Testament. They're hitched together forever. Just like the rest of the world, the, the rest of this word is hitched together forever. So let's, let's go look at this, this great lesson here in chapter number 16 about this manna from heaven. You remember the story when we left off. The Israelites had left Egypt. Uh, they had gone into the wilderness. They had complained because they didn't have, at first they sang all these praises and they complained because they didn't have any water. Uh, and they called the place Marah. It was a place of bitterness. And God gave them, a water, gave them water from the rock. And then he led them to Elam. Elam means the place of God. And they came to Elam and there were 70 palm trees and there were 12 wells, which was a signified the fact that they were totally satisfied. Their hunger was satisfied and their thirst was satisfied. And now as we come to chapter 16, we pick up there. 
And they journeyed from Elam, the place of God. And all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. I wonder if that has any meaning there. You better believe it does. Whenever you leave the place of God, where are you going to head? You're going to head into the wilderness of sin. If you're not living close to God, you're going to be heading into the wilderness of sin. And I'm going to tell you what you're going to see when you get out there. At some point, you're going to see Sinai. You're going to see the law, and that's where they were heading next, which is in between Elam and Sinai. See all this rich application here, this rich symbolism here, typology here we see in this, this chapter. Now look when they left. It says, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, they came to the wilderness of sin. Now that was actually 30 days from the time of the Exodus, from the time they left Egypt. So it, they left on the 15th of the, the first month, and then now we're at the 15th of the second month, and so uh, now they're in the wilderness of sin. And, and here they are, they're in this wilderness. And you, and you can put yourself in their shoes for a minute. They're in the wilderness, and there's two, over 2 million Jews. And they're in the wilderness, and they, they got some common sense. Not much, but they, they had some common sense. They're kind of like us, they're kind of bullheaded like lambs and sheep, you do really stupid things. But anyway, they get out there and they start looking around and they're saying to themselves, there's no water out here. All we see are these little prairie dogs and lizards and snakes and scorpions and spiders. What are we going to eat as this journey continues? There's two million of them. We got, a, we got some cattle, we got some you know, we've got some livestock. I mean, we, we, we'll be able to eat those, but that's not going to last but a few days if all of us start eating that livestock. And then we're not going to have any milk. I mean, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so, so, so they, they get worried. I mean, they're worried. They're, they're, they're wondering what in the world is going to happen to them. And, and, and after all the Lord had done for them, they refused to truly put their trust in him. I mean, you go back to the, to the time they sent, the Lord sent Moses to deliver them and all the plagues and, and the great uh, parting of the Red Sea and all the great things, the water from the rock and, all, and, and, and uh, uh, Elam, this place of God where they had seen the provision of God and all of these wonderful things that God had done for them and yet they still, they look around and their, their reason trumps their faith. You got to be careful with that. Don't let your reason trump your faith. Faith should always trump your reason. But they let their reason trump their faith and say, look, we're going we're to be starving soon. We're going to be thirsty soon. God's going to forsake us. We'd been better off if we'd stayed in Egypt. And so they began to complain. And that's where we pick up in the, the next verse. It says, then the whole congregation, I mean, every single one of them, of the children of Israel, complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, to Moses and Aaron, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat. I mean, we, were, we, we had it made. I mean, what are they saying? They were in slavery. They were in bondage. They didn't have a relationship with the Lord. They didn't care about any of that. I mean, all they cared about was their bellies being full, like a lot of us. I mean, who was their God then? Their God was their belly. And so they're complaining against Moses, and they say, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord of the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to our full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. If you had left us alone, we'd be a lot better off. I don't know if you've ever said that as a, Christian when times have gotten tough. Oh, Lord, if you just left me alone where I was, things would be a lot better when I was taking care of myself. Is that so? No, no way. Uh, you're lying to yourself if you've said that. Then the Lord said to Moses, and I'm, go I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to kill them. I I'm, I've had it with these people. No, he doesn't say that. Look at the mercy of the Lord here. The Lord says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them, that I may teach them to keep my law, to walk in my law. Whether they're going to do it or not, I'm, uh, they're probably not, but I'm going to teach them to do that. 
And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. On the, on the sixth day, they would gather twice as much because the seventh day would be, Saturday would be the Sabbath. Now, what was this bread? What was this bread that God gave them that rained down from me? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine your food raining down from heaven? I mean, what was it? I, let me tell you what it was. Go to Psalm chapter, or let me let the Bible tell you what it was. Go to Psalms chapter 78. And it's a long psalm, so pick up in uh, verse number 23. It says, Yet he had commanded the clouds above, and he opened the door of the Lord. The Lord had commanded the clouds above, and he opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down manna, manna on them to eat, and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate, watch this, angels' food. That's what this manna was. It was angels' food. And he gave them all they could eat. He sent it to them, the food to the full. I mean, here was this food that came down from heaven. It had absolutely perfect nutrition. I mean, you talk about the fountain of youth. This was the fountain of youth. I mean, you, you, you could live forever on this food. And so, so he, he gave them this food, and they had this food. It came down every single day for 40 years until the day they stepped into the promised land. On that day, the manna quit raining down from heaven. But up until that time, God gave them that manna from heaven. And they were to gather that food every day. They were to gather enough, uh, all they wanted. No more, no less. As much as they wanted to eat, God recommended an omer, but if they wanted to gather, if they liked to eat a lot, and they wanted to eat two omers, they could gather two omers. But basically you gathered one omer for every person in your family, and then, and then you, you, you no more, no less. And on Friday you would gather twice as much uh, manna so that you would have the uh, manna for the Sabbath. And God did it this way to teach them, to trust him. He does it that way in our lives to teach us sometimes to trust him. The Lord's Prayer, what does it say? Lord, give us this day our daily bread. I mean, some of us say, Lord, give us our bread for the next five years. Give me, help me get this business deal done or help me get this raised so that I can, I can have plenty in the bank and I really don't have to trust you. I can trust in my bank account. You know... I had some lean years when I first got saved, and, and, and uh, uh, for, for the years I went through seminary and, and, and uh, those early years, I mean, we really, we really struggled. But it, it, I could relate to that prayer, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, give us our provision for this day. The, and the Lord always did. I mean, if, if you're sitting out here today and you've got $5 in your bank account and you're wondering what's what you're going to do the next day. I promise you this, if you're a child of God, you're going to have provision for the next day. I've never seen a hungry man begging, I mean a righteous man begging for bread, David says, and I agree with that. God will give you your daily bread. Sometimes it's going to look like he's not going to be able to provide for you, but he will always provide for you if, if you're a child of God. And I, 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 I think everybody in this room can testify to that. But here are these people, and, and God is blessing them, and, and they're complaining. And, and look what Moses says in verse number 6, going back to Exodus 16. Then Moses and Aaron said to all, all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. You're going to see the quail come into the camp. And in the morning you're going to see the glory of the Lord through the manna for for he hears your complaints. I mean, he's going to bless you, but he hears your complaints. For, for what are we that you're complaining against us? I mean, what are, you, what are you complaining against us for? We're not the ones who brought you out here. The Lord brought you out here. We're not the ones who are going to provide for you or in charge of providing for you. The Lord is in charge of providing for you. 
And Moses says, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread uh, to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we that you're complaining against us? Your complaints, watch this carefully. The lesson for every one of you in this room, for every one of us in this room. Your complaints are not against us, but they're against the Lord. Whenever God puts authorities over us and we complain against those authorities, we are complaining against the Lord. When you complain, you children who complain about your parents, you don't like your parents, guess who gave you your parents? The Lord gave you your, your parents. So when you complain about your parents, you're complaining against the Lord. When you don't like the governor of Louisiana and you don't like the mandates that he gives out and you complain against him and you curse him, I, I, gotta, I hate to tell you this, but you're cursing the Lord. The Lord's the one that's put him in charge. We're to submit to every authority, every king, every authority. Because in submitting to that authority, we're submitting to the Lord. And when we buck that authority, unless it's causing us to buck the Lord, but when we buck that authority because of our own self-interest, then we're bucking the Lord. And that's wrong. That's evil. And that's exactly what they were doing here. I mean, it seemed unfair to them. And they weren't going to make their complaint against God. They made it against God. Uh, 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 Moses and against Aaron and Moses says hey you're not you're, you're complaining against us it's against the Lord and now the Lord's going to come address your complaint that's kind of a scary thought then Moses spoke to Aaron and say to all the congregation of the children of Israel come near before the Lord for he has heard your complaints now, at this point the Lord isn't fed up with them but there's going to come a time when the ground's going to start opening up and put the, and sucking up these complainers in, 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 in the wrath of the Lord and so he, he's, Moses is saying, I don't know if this is that time, but hey, the Lord wants to talk to us. The Lord's coming to see us. Uh, so get ready. I remember when I was a young child, I mean, one of the most exciting things in my day was the time when my dad would come home. Unless I had done something bad that day. And I can remember my mom saying, here comes your dad when I, those days I'd done something bad. And, and I wasn't glad that it was my dad. I mean, I was scared. My dad knew how to uh, wield the, the belt. And, and I think these, these Egyptians, I mean, these Israelites at this point are scared too. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. What a fearful sight that had to be. And at this point, again, the Lord's cup of wrath is at full. So he's not going to exercise his wrath on them. He's actually going to bless them. Look at what it says in verse number 11. And the Lord spoke to, uh, to Moses saying, and what, look at this great mercy. He says, I've heard their complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at the evening and covered the camp and in the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of the dew lifted, there was on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost, white substance as fine as frost on the ground. I don't know what it was. It was grits. I'm pretty sure it was grits. Something like grit. Actually, there is no nutrition in grits. So angel food sounds a lot better. Now, I got to tell you, angel food cake, my grandma used to make an angel food cake. Hey, that's some good stuff. And I think that's where she got that from. She, she gathered some manna off of the ground because it was really good. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, they said one word, manna. Manna means what is this? What in the world is this on the ground? Are we supposed to eat this? What is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. And just like Bubba said in Forrest Gump, he said, Moses said to him, you can bake it, you can fry it, you can saute it, 
You can barbecue it. I mean, you can do all sorts of stuff with these grits. It's going to be really good. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, and really according to their desire. One omer is recommended. That's about two quarts for each person. That's a lot of food. According to the number of persons, let every man uh, take for those who are in his tent. So if you had uh, 10 people in your camp, you got 20 quarts, then the, or 10 omers. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less. Some wanted to eat more, some less, but whatever they ate, they were supposed to eat it all. So when they measured out the omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. He ate it all, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to, to what they desired to eat. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it until the morning. But, you know, you're always going to have some people that don't trust the Lord. Oh, well, we're going to get manna today, but what about tomorrow? I mean, God provided for me today, but will he provide for me tomorrow? And listen, listen to what happens. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until the morning. Because they really didn't trust the Lord, and it bred worms and it stank. That's actually a miracle of God. He put worms in it. You kept it there, it got worms and it stunk. And Moses was angry with them because what were they? They were hoarders. They were like these hoarders you see that they hear bad news and they go get all the toilet paper in, in, in the entire country. Now, I don't know where their minds are that their toilet paper is so important to them. I mean, I might go get all the steaks or something like that, but toilet paper. What about leaves? I mean, we got plenty of leaves around here. I think they're... I, you know... I don't believe in hoarding. I believe in the times in which we live, you need to keep a supply of everything, the basic things you need. But you don't need 14 packets of toilet paper at your house. Uh, you don't need that. You're not trusting the Lord. You can kind of measure your faith in the Lord by how you hoard. I tell you, if you're a hoarder, you don't really trust the Lord. You don't really trust the Lord for your provision. You trust yourself. That's going to get you one day. Because if, God's, if he, God wants to have you run out of your stuff, he's either going to spoil it with worms and make it stink, or you're going to run out of it, and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to learn to trust him. It's, it's coming. So don't, don't be a hoarder. I mean, again, be wise as a serpent, but, but don't be a hoarder. So they gathered it every morning, every one according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And it was in the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is the Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, an eternal Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't created by the law. And it, the, the Sabbath was created for man forever. God created the Sabbath when he created the universe. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, he he worked six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And he laid out the pattern of the Sabbath there. I believe that he's working 6,000 years, and then on the 7,000 in the last millennium, that's the millennium we're about to go into, uh, he's going to rest, and we're going to rest. I believe that's what the millennium's all about. We don't observe the Sabbath. In, in, in a legal, from a legal standpoint, but you better believe we observe the Sabbath. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that, that we're, you know, let us not fail to enter our Sabbath rest. We have a Sabbath rest. And that Sabbath rest is Jesus Christ where we cease from our works for salvation and for sanctification and for glorification. And we rest in Jesus Christ. So this was an eternal thing, this Sabbath thing. And so it, we, we didn't have to wait for the law to get this Sabbath rule. So God's got them already observing the Sabbath. And he says, bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil. I'm, I'm in verse 23. And lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until the morning. So you gather twice as much on the sixth day and you're going to have some left for the seventh day. So they laid up till the morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink. What a miracle. I mean, here it was. If you kept it overnight, it stank and it rotted and there were worms in it. Now it doesn't rot or stink and there are not worms in it because God is exercising a miracle. He's showing his provision to his people that he can provide for them. Uh, then Moses said, eat to that today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it 
in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, uh, the Sabbath, there will be none. But you always got some people who are hard-headed and aren't going to trust the Lord. I mean, that's the history of Israel. Now, it happened that some, probably a lot of them, of the people went out on the seventh day. They ate all it. They, they, they didn't want any stinking uh, manna in their camp, and so they didn't gather enough for the seventh day. And so they went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And so that made the Lord angry. So the Lord said through Moses in verse number 28, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, see for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. I've given you the Sabbath to rest, not to work, not to gather manna, not to gather quail. You've got plenty to eat, uh, rest, and, 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 and take a break. Therefore, he gives you... On the sixth day, bread for two days. Uh, trust him. Let every man remain in his place. Let no one go out in his place on the seventh day. And uh, they learned their lesson, so the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna. What is it? And it was like white coriander seed. I told you it was grits. And the taste of it, was like wafers made with honey, angel food. Like you make angel food cake out of it, real angel food cake. And then he gives one last precept here as we finish up. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it. Uh, to Take one jar and fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations. This man, if you could find that manna today in the Ark of the Covenant, I believe it would still be as fresh as the day when they gathered it. He said, put this, fill an armor with it to be kept for the generations that they may see the bread which you fed on in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses, Moses said to Aaron, take a jar or a pot a jar, and put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord, and be kept for your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, and it laid up, they laid it up before the law, before the testimony, before the Ten Commandments to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years. Every day God was faithful to give them that manna. I, I bet you after 40 years, they trusted that Lord that that manna was going to come down. I bet you after about five years they trusted the Lord that the manna was going to come down every day, that they were going to have plenty to eat. And uh, so they, children of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Now, here's what that last passage is all about. Later on, the Lord is going to give Moses, we're coming to that in a few chapters, he's going to give him instructions for the tabernacle. And in those instructions are the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant was to be overlaid in gold, and there were to be two cherubim there. The top of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. Inside the ark were three things. One of the things was the rod that Aaron had that budded. And if you were to find the ark today, I believe you would see fresh buds on that rod. It continued to bud. It always budded. It never quit budding. Even though it didn't have water, even though it didn't have light, even though it didn't have ground to root in, it continued to bud. And then the third thing, or, or the second thing that was in there was the, the uh, Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments were put into, the, written by the very hand of God. I mean, you, you could see what a find it would be if you could find the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was this jar of manna the, uh, that uh, we, Moses has given the instructions about here at the end of uh, the book of Exodus. Now that Ark... And this is why I say you can't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. That ark gives us nothing less than a picture 
of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is gold. He is divine. He is our mercy seat. The angels are above him singing, Holy, holy, holy is the one who was and is and is to come. And they sing that constantly. And his blood is sprinkled on that mercy seat. It's really sprinkled on our souls. And it's its blood that saves us. And inside that ark, you have Aaron's rod, which continues to bud. That signifies as symbolic of of, of the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 11, Whosoever believeth in me shall never die. I am the resurrection and the life. That's what that bud represents. The Ten Commandments represent the truth and righteousness of Jesus Christ, of God. You can't separate the Ten Commandments from, from the New Testament. You, the, the, the New Testament is about salvation having the new commandments written on our heart so that we can live out the righteousness of God. Not in our power and our strength, but in the power and strength of Jesus Christ. And then there's that manna. There's that manna in the ark uh, that represents Jesus or spoke of Jesus as the bread of life. You remember the story of John chapter 6. I remember I told you earlier how these two passages are tied together. You can't unhitch these passages from each other. But you remember the story in John chapter 6 when Jesus had fed the 5,000 miraculously with the, with the bread, the few loaves of bread. And then he decided to cross the Galilee in a boat and all the multitudes followed him in their boats. And they came to the other side, and that's where I want to pick up. Go with me to, to the book of John. And, and they, they got their feelings hurt. They said, Rabbi, why... Go to John chapter 6. Rabbi, why did you leave us there? I mean, you just got up and left, and you didn't even say goodbye. You hurt our feelings. Jesus said, well, it really wasn't that your feelings were hurt. It's that you, you liked what I'd done when I fed you, and you wanted more food. Because listen to what he says, picking up in chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you that you seek me not because you saw the signs, because, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. And you know what, you know what Jesus was saying? He said, you seek me because you're carnal. You seek me to have your things of your flesh fulfilled. That's the only reason you seek me. That's the wrong reason for seeking the Lord. You know, the, it, it's a, the wrong reason for seeking the Lord. One of the wrong reasons for seeking the Lord is so that you can be in glory and that you can see you know, you can, you can have a mansion in heaven somewhere. You know, I think there's way too much emphasis placed on the mansions in heaven. i tell you what, when you get to, if you have a mansion in heaven, you ain't going to want to be there. You're going to want to be at the throne of God. That, the emphasis is on Christ and what Christ does for us, not, not on the things. And, and, and all they were concerned about was the fact that their bellies had been filled. Just like the, the, the Israelites in in the wilderness, that's all they were worrying about was whether their bellies would be filled or not. He said, do not labor, verse 27, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, if you'll believe in him, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, and watch this very carefully here, they said, what shall we do that we may do, that we may work, now watch the, how, uh, the word works here, it's plural. He says that we may work the works of God. You know, I think everybody looks at salvation that way, the works of, we've got to do works in order to be saved. What do we do? What works must we do, do in order to be saved? And Jesus, or, or order to partake of this bread. And Jesus said, answered and said to them, this is the work, singular, not plural, of God, that you believe on him whom he sent. 
In other words, you must put your faith in me in order to be saved. Now, here's what I want you to see. Where does faith come from? Is that just something that we just get by osmosis? Where does faith come from? Faith, Romans 10, chapter 17, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. See, that's where you get faith. You, they didn't ha get faith by seeing the 5,000 fed. You don't get faith through signs and wonders. Now, that, that's where a lot of churches try to go. They try to build faith through, through, you go to a church and say, man, you want to build your faith, come to our church and you'll see all sorts of signs and wonders. That's not where you get faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And these people thought, hey, man, we, we, we get faith from signs and wonders. Show us some signs. And that's what they say. Look at the next verse. They say, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we can have this faith? That, that we can believe on you, that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, which Moses gave us. That's the way they saw it. And it is written, he gave them bread from, from heaven to eat. That's the, one of the passages we looked at today in chapter 16, verse number 15. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses didn't give you anything. Moses didn't, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father gave you the bread from heaven. And my Father now gives you the true bread from heaven, the everlasting bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, that's me, is what Jesus is saying, and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, and I love this statement, I am. I am the great I am. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What a wonderful proclamation right there. If you come to him and you believe in him, you will never hunger and you will never thirst. How do you believe in him? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know of anybody that doesn't want to be spiritually satisfied. We don't want to be hungry. We want to be spiritually fulfilled. And, and so the question is, if, it, if, if we're fulfilled in Jesus Christ through the, through the manna that came down from heaven, he is the manna who came down from heaven. If we're fulfilled in that manner, how do we partake of the bread of life? I mean, how do I, how do I get this? I mean, that would have been my question if I'd been standing there today. Okay, you're the bread of life. How can I eat that bread? I mean, and, and he tells them later on, and they, they all went away. This is crazy. You've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, he said. And so they left. And all his disciples are left, except a few. And so... We want to ask that question. Lord, how do we partake of this manna from heaven? I believe in the manna from heaven. I, you, you believe in the manna from heaven? How do we partake of it? Well, there's two ways. There's two ways that we partake of the bread from heaven. One is through the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper and we eat the bread, we are partaking of his body when we drink the wine or grape juice, whatever we're drinking, we're partaking of his blood. Not physically, like some teach. I mean, the Catholics and the Anglicans, uh, the Episcopalians all teach in what's called transubstantiation, which means that somehow Jesus gets back on the cross each time you have the Lord's Supper, and uh, you, you get fresh bread, and you get fresh blood. The priest blessed the bread, and they bless the blood, and it actually becomes in your body the bread the flesh of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's transubstantiation. That's what they believe. And I can understand where they could get that. But that's not how it works. This is a spiritual transaction. When we come to the table, that's why it's so important to partake of the Lord's Supper and to partake of it very seriously. 
When we come to the Lord's Supper, spiritually, we're partaking of his body. Spiritually, we're partaking of his blood. We're, 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 by remembering his sacrifice, we actually partake of his body and we partake of his blood. And, and we, we appropriate that sacrifice to our own souls. Now, that's one way we do that, but that doesn't, that doesn't take care of the daily need that we have. The second way that we, we partake of this manna from heaven uh, is, is this spiritual manna is through feeding on Christ through the word. You feed on Christ through the word because he is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word is God. He was God and is God and always will be God. And we partake of him through his word. Where do we find this spiritual manner? Where do we find his word? Right here in this Bible. And it doesn't begin in Matthew. It begins in Genesis. This is his word. If you're a Christian here today, and be honest with yourself, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But are you hungry? Are you hungry for more? Are you thirsting for something else? I mean, you, do you never feel satisfied? I mean, all the goods and everything you buy and everything you eat and everything you drink, does it not satisfy you? Do you feel unsatisfied, unfulfilled? Are you hungry for more? Well, I'll tell you why. Probably it's because there's a shortage of manna in your system. You're not partaking of the manna daily. You're not feeding daily on the Old Testament and the New Testament of this Bible. It is the bread of life for the believer. It is the spiritual nutrition that feeds us and makes us grow and makes us mature. How does that work? You want me to tell you how it works? I can't tell you how it works. I just believe it works. Jesus said the farmer, he goes out and he, he plants his seed and he, he, waters, he, he waters his crop and the sun hits his plant and, and sooner or later it bears a, a vegetable or it bears fruit. And he doesn't know how that happens. He just knows that if he does those things, it's going to happen. He believes that by faith because he's seen it work in his crops. Well, I've seen it work in my life. I don't know how God changes me and matures me and grows me spiritually through his word, but I know that he does that. I mean, I'm at a big advantage because I have to be in his word every day. I study his word every day because that's my job. You don't have to do it. At least you don't think you have to do it, but you do. If you don't do it, you're starving yourself of the spiritual manna that God has given you. You're to partake of that food daily, and it's the only way that we can satisfy our spiritual hunger. And it's not just some topical message that you listen to now and then. It's not just coming to church and even listen to a biblical message now and then. It's a daily partaking of the manna of God that gives you the nutrition that you need to grow spiritually. If it, and listen, you know, I know some people that think, wow, I haven't studied the Word in, 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 in a month. I'm going to pick up the Bible and I'm going to study it all day today. It won't work. You know what's going to happen? It's just going to stink and it's going to spoil. You're trying to gather too much. You're to gather that manna daily. You're to partake of that manna daily. And if you don't partake of that manna daily, I am warning you, you are starving yourself spiritually. And you're going to hunger and you're going to thirst and you're going to go out and you're going to try to feel that, feel that hunger and feel that thirst in the wrong things and you're going to fall into sin. And that's what happens to believers. Man, when you start coming to this word, seeking God in this word because he's in this word, this is living and active, when you're, when you're seeking God in this word, you're going to find him. 
And when you honor him and seek him on a daily basis, when you cut out some time in the morning and you, you honor him, maybe it's just 20 minutes. It probably didn't take them more than 30 minutes to gather all that manna. You spend 30 minutes with the Lord in, in the word, not legalistically, seeking God, saying, God, I want to find you, not trying to cover a whole chapter, read the Bible in 365 days, all that stuff's legalism. Just go seek the Lord in his word and say, Lord, I want to seek you because I want to find you. I want to feed on you spiritually. And if you do that, you're going to suddenly find yourself not hungering for some of the things of this world. You're going to have, be fulfilled spiritually. See, I think one of the big problems in the church today is a, a good portion of what's being taught is, is some, some good topical, good feeling, you know, feel-good topical message every week. Look, there's nothing wrong with a feel-good topical message. I like those every once in a while myself. But if that's all you feed on, it would be like you eat nothing but Cool Whip. You know, and trying to, trying to satisfy your hunger, you're never going to satisfy your hunger with that. Lyle, do you eat nothing but Cool Whip? <laughs> I saw Rachel patting him on the back. He looks like Cool Whip. <laughs> I like Cool Whip too, but I don't want to, I, I like steak a lot better. Here's the most important thing. That manna that we partake of daily, Old Testament, New Testament, is how we come into the presence of God. We sang a lot of songs about coming into the presence of God today, and I was thinking about that as they were being sung. I think our mindset is, oh man, I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to come into the presence of God. That doesn't happen. Every once in a while that might happen. But that, if you're honest with yourself, you might scream and shout and, and speak in tongues and, and do all sorts of stuff. But if you're really honest with yourself, you might feel the presence of some demons sometimes. But if you're really honest with yourself, it's rare where you physically sense the presence of God. We come into the presence of God through his word. I like what John Stott says about this. And I'm not a big John Stott fan, so I'm not highly recommending everything he says, but I do like what he says about this. The intimacy that we have with Christ through feeding on his word is infinitely more greater than the intimacy we would have with Christ if all we did was gaze on his glory. Because you would never know Christ gazing upon his glory. You're going to get one day get to gaze upon his glory, but what's going to make that glory so great is that you know Christ, and he knows you. And so if you're looking for just a feel-good experience with Christ, that's not the way you get intimate with Jesus Christ. You get intimate with Jesus Christ through this word, through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. You feed on that daily. And I tell you, when you do that, you're going to feel spiritually fulfilled. And Ultimately, you're going to be hitched together with Jesus Christ forever. That's a good deal, isn't it? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us your word as our spiritual nutrition to not only feed on you and learn about you, Lord, but to come into your very presence. Lord, we thank you for that great gift. Lord, help us not to neglect that. Help us by faith, Lord, the faith that comes from hearing. Help us to exercise that faith and seek you through your word. Help it to become of importance to us, not legalistically, Lord, but of importance because we want to know you. 
We want to know the one who died on us for a cross. We want to know the one who we're going to live with forever. We're going to know, want to, we, we want to know about the one whose, whose glory we're going to see forever. Lord, we want to be close to you because we love you and we love you because you first loved us. We just thank you for that love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you in, through Christ Jesus. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.